gospel in the 10th chapter, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and verse 32 says this. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Just by way of review, as we look at this map, you'll remember that the Mount of Transfiguration experience most likely happened when they were in the north in Caesarea Philippi. Then they made their way down to the city of Capernaum, which is on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Then traveling through the land of Samaria, Mark doesn't tell us much of what happened, but the other gospel writers tell us that the Lord continued to do his miracle work as well as proclaiming the gospel. Then Mark tells us, along with the other gospel writers, that Jesus made his way across the Jordan to the east side of the Jordan, the land of Perea. And now he's beginning to make his way back west. He's going to cross the Jordan again. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we will be in Jericho, which is that first city, as soon as you cross the Jordan, and then ultimately to Jerusalem, where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 32 says they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. <laughs> he paints quite a dramatic picture. This implies courage and determination. And the disciples didn't quite know what to do with it. I see Jesus striding forward, a man on a mission. And he has got this frightening resolve to make sure that what he accomplishes is indeed the mighty will of God. The disciples had never witnessed such fortitude before. And so that's why the scripture says they were astonished and those who followed were afraid. Might be referring to all the disciples who were following him and this combination of astonishment and fear is what we call awe or wonder. Or amazement. Jesus is displaying amazing courage here because he knows exactly what is going to take place. Someone said there are two kinds of courage. There is that instinctive courage that happens to you in the spur of the moment. No time to think. You simply have this reflex action and in the moment, maybe the heat of battle when confronted by the enemy you display amazing courage, and afterwards that person will be interviewed and, and someone will say, how in the world did you do something so courageous? And they said, I wasn't thinking. I just acted. And many heroes are made in a moment, like on the battlefield. But the second kind of courage is that courage that's intentional, where you see something that is coming far ahead, and yet you continue on. There's no evading the issue. You have time to decide, but you inexorably go forward. Go forward and face the danger. 
And the second type of courage is a harder type of courage, and Jesus had it in spades. He abounded with this moral courage. It was Mark Twain who observed, it's interesting, that while there is a lot of human courage or bravery to be seen, there is such a lack of moral courage in our world today. David McCullough, the Pulitzer Prize winner who has written some amazing biographies, was once being interviewed on the life of George Washington, whom he calls the greatest leader that America has ever had. He said Washington wasn't an intellectual like Jefferson or Adams. He wasn't a great strategist or uh, uh, planning of battles or leader of, of armies like Napoleon. He wasn't a great tactician. He wasn't passionate or persuasive when he spoke like Patrick Henry. George Washington was simply a leader. He had absolute integrity, for lack of a better term, character. And he had phenomenal courage, which according to McCullough is the first thing required in a leader for everything else depends on that. And so to look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be amazed at his Amazing courage. But this portion of Scripture is not just simply highlighting the fact that Jesus was brave or courageous. It helps move the story along, inevitably to the cross, to be sure. But this story does something else for us. It actually paints, in contrast to the disciples, in very vivid form, that there are two ways to live your life, the way Jesus approaches life and the way the disciples approach life. Years ago, I came across a helpful booklet written by Jay Adams, who is known for his work in the realm of nuthetic counseling. And Jay Adams, in this, at the end of this booklet, simply said this, there are two ways to live. He said the first way to live is a self-centered life doing what pleases you based on your desires. And the second way to live is a God-centered life, doing what pleases God based on his word. And I found that eminently helpful in my young walk with Christ to be able to boil it down in such a simple and clear way that really there are these two grand and major motives of life. I'm either going to live life for myself or for God. I'm either going to live to please myself based on what I want or live to please God based on what he wants. And we see these two pictured very clearly in our scripture before us. First of all, let's notice this divine mission that Jesus was on. Verse 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So as they're making their way to Jerusalem, Jesus pulls the twelve aside and he wants to instruct them. Now, the contrast between Jesus and the disciples is rather amazing. He's the perfect picture of determination, 
and they're the perfect picture of incomprehension. He knows what he wants to do, and they are totally confused. He has clarity of purpose. And they're filled with astonishment, even fear. Maybe they sense that what Jesus has been telling them is going to be demanded of them. That is, Jesus is going to go and suffer, and his commitment now is basically urging them to go forward and make the same type of commitment. And maybe that's why they're so afraid. But the Bible tells us that Jesus was on a mission. Have you ever seen someone kind of walking through a crowd? You say hello to them and they don't even acknowledge you. Their, their face is set and their stride is quick and someone says, boy, he's on a mission. Which means everything else is subservient to what he wants to accomplish. He's driven or she is driven and they have something that they want to do. That's Jesus at this point. We quoted from Isaiah 50, where it says, He set his face like a flint. He had something he wanted to accomplish. Notice his resolve. This is the third time, by the way, that Jesus has told his disciples what's going to happen. And this has more detail than the other two uh, opportunities to discuss and inform. The first was at, uh, 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 Mark chapter 8. And Jesus basically told them, that he, the Son of Man, was going to suffer many things. He told them that he was going to be rejected by the religious leaders, that he would be killed and three days rise again. And how did the disciples, disciples respond? Peter rebuked him. <laughs> said, Lord, that can't happen. The second time was chapter 9, also in verse 31, and Jesus adds a few more details. This time, he tells them that he's going to be betrayed. There is the hint of betrayal in that word, delivered up. And he also describes the fact that wicked men are going to kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And how did the disciples respond? They began to argue on the way to Capernaum, who was the greatest. Now Jesus tells them a third time with more details than before. Notice, he says he's going to be condemned to death. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. That was not mentioned before. Before it was the religious leaders. So the religious leaders will reject him. Someone will betray him. The Gentiles will abuse him. They will mock him, verse 34, spit on him, flog him, kill him. Isn't the detail amazing? Again, the prophecy coming to us from the book of Isaiah written hundreds of years before it ever happened. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheek to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And that's what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he adds, three days later, he will rise. And still the disciples could not comprehend all that was happening. Or maybe, understanding what was happening, they quickly wanted to change the subject. Jesus lived a God-centered life, doing what pleased the Father. With great references like this, in Hebrews, quoting the book of Psalms, I have come to do your will, O God. In the volume of the book it is written of me. 
Not a sacrifice, but a body you have prepared. So Jesus is the fulfillment of that man who lived the will of God perfectly and accomplished amazing things. What did he produce? His commitment produced awe and respect. His commitment produced amazement and wonder as the disciples were astonished. And so you and I are amazed at the life that goes against the current, that swims upstream, that is different from most, the life that shines like a light in a dark place because that life has determined that they will live to please God. And they're on a divine mission. William Barclay said, if there were no higher verdict than this, it would still be true to say of Jesus that he ranks among the heroes of the world if all he had was this amazing courage. But of course, there's more. Now contrast the courage and determination of Jesus on a divine mission and look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus, knowing what they were going to ask, still asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit on your right hand and the other on your left in glory. (laughs) And Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking. Now, here's the second way to live, selfish ambition. This is a a startling request. The timing could not have been worse. It's much like when they arrived at Capernaum. In fact, haven't you heard this before? This is Mark chapter 9 when they they were arguing who is the greatest, but now they've actually come and asked for a position. By the way, Matthew's gospel Chapter 20, verse 20, says that this request was actually asked by their mom, Salome. (laughs) I could just see it. The boys hiding behind their mother's skirts. You tell him. (laughs) Uh, My boys want me to ask you. Oh, no, I would like to ask you. And, of course, what mom doesn't want a good position for her boys? They were asking to be the chief ministers of state to have a major role in the administration of Christ when his kingdom came to the earth. By the way, this gives us an interesting insight into the disciples' view of the kingdom. It was an earthly kingdom where Jesus would rule and reign on a throne over the nations on planet earth. But what spiritual snobbery. By the way, They might have thought, you know, hey, we're part of the inner circle, James and John, right? We were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. We deserve a position like this. But who wasn't there also asking for a position? Peter, who's probably the top disciple. They boxed him out. Like in a game of musical chairs, they're going to sit in the seats before he gets a chance to. Jesus, give us the positions. The most powerful positions for a king were given to those who sat on his right hand and those who sat on his left. They were focused on their own selfish agenda. Now what you have to understand, and let's give the disciples just a little bit of credit, two things. 
Number one, they believed the kingdom was coming. That took faith. They were still hopeful. They were still loyal to Jesus. And the Bible tells us that Jesus promised that they would rule with him in the coming kingdom. So they believed that promise. They just wanted to make sure they had the top seats. Just looking out for myself, that's all. Now this was a question, by the way. Jesus asked them a question that really should have been answered with a clear no. Jesus said in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said, yes, we can. Bring it on. These guys are clueless and overconfident to be kind. What is Jesus talking about? Their request is going to involve tremendous suffering. What is the cup? The cup is a metaphor for any experience that you and I have in life, and it could be good and it could be bad. When you drink the cup, you're identifying with an experience. For instance, you know Psalm 23 that says, my cup runs over, right? What does that speak of? Abundant goodness. When you follow Christ as your shepherd, you're drinking the cup of an abundant life where life just overflows with blessing. But more often than not, the cup is the cup of suffering. We read in Isaiah 51, the cup of God's wrath you have drained to its dregs, and the goblet you drink makes men stagger. The cup of God's wrath. Or how about Psalm 75, verse 8? In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it. And when you get to the book of the Revelation, chapter 14, they will drink the wine of God's wrath that has been poured out in full strength in the cup of his fury. So you're either going to drink a cup that identifies you with Christ so that you experience the, the atonement and the sacrifice and all the benefits of that death of Christ accrue to you if you drink the cup or you will drink the cup of his wrath. And you know what Jesus did on the cross? He drank the cup of God's wrath for you so you wouldn't have to drink it. My friend, that is mercy. So when Jesus said to them, are you gonna drink the cup that I drink? Are you gonna go through my sufferings? Sure, bring it on, they said. And what about the word baptism? That throws us off just a little bit because we immediately think of the rite of the church when a person comes to faith in Jesus, but the, the word baptism simply means to be submerged into something. So when I drink the cup, I experience whatever that cup refers to, and when I'm baptized, I enter into something that surrounds me. I'm submerged into an experience that envelops me. It's two ways of saying the, the same thing. Can you be submerged into my suffering? 
Now, maybe the early church, when Mark wrote, thought of baptism and the Lord's Supper when Jesus mentioned these two things. Uh, it would be impossible not to. And maybe he was saying, when you follow Christ, remember that following Christ involves not just glory. It's not just the kingdom. It's not just the crown. It's the cross. Go back to chapter 10 and verse 30. Peter said, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, no one has left everything to follow me without being repaid a hundredfold in relationships, in fields, in families, and persecutions. Following Christ involves more than just glory. And yet they were clueless. Sure we can. By the way, they did have to drink the cup. James was the first martyr of all the apostles, according to Acts chapter 12. And John, who lived to be the oldest of all the apostles, suffered brutal persecution before he was exiled. What did their request produce? Look at verse 41, indignation. Jesus said, first of all, I can't give you these positions because it's not mine to grant. They're going to be given to those who have been prepared for them. Verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with James and John. Why? Ah, I should have asked first. <laughs> I don't want them to beat me to the punch. Yeah, everyone was jockeying for position. And there's only two ways to live. And Jesus gives another lesson, which is the same as the lesson given in chapter 9 when they were arguing about who is the greatest, verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave. The Greek word servant is the most common term used for spiritual leaders and workers in the first century. Doulos, or actually, actually, excuse me, it's diakonos, where we get the English word deacon. But notice it is synonymous with the word servant at the end of verse, or slave, at the end of verse 44. This is the same lesson that they were given back in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Apparently they didn't get it the first time, and you and I often need God to teach us the same lesson twice, right? Twice. <laughs> Maybe the 30th time, and I began to get it. We're just like the disciples. In the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service, the service we render, not by the number of serv servants we command. And then Jesus says something very interesting. As an example of a servant, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He did not come to, to be ministered unto, but to minister to others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So now the death of Christ becomes for us an example of what a real servant is. Read Philippians chapter 2. The one who was equal with God, left heaven's glory, as we sang a moment ago, emptied himself of all but love, 
and came to this earth, was made as a man, humbled himself as a servant, even to the point of death. And the death of Christ is an example for us of what a real servant is. But the death of Christ is more than just an example. It is a ransom. It was an example to them of a real servant, and it was a ransom for them. For Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And now something is introduced into the death of Christ that we've not heard before. And it is this important point. Not only would he be betrayed and handed over to the Gentiles and abused, but he would willingly give up his life. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Notice that in verse 45. He gives his life as a ransom. Everyone knew what a ransom was. It was an economic term. It was the money paid to release a slave or a prisoner or to purchase a piece of land that was mortgaged. It was the price paid to free someone. And Jesus paid the price, not to the devil, not even to God as it were, but to the righteous standard of his holy law. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. Titus chapter 2 says he gave himself for us that he might redeem us and purify unto himself a people who would be excited about doing God's good works. And so this portion of scripture is perfect for the communion service. Because the communion service is not just to remember what Jesus has done for us, but to rededicate ourselves to him. And what better way to rededicate than to ask ourselves the tough question, what is the major motive of my life? What is my agenda? Am I living a self-centered life based on pleasing my own desires? Or have I given myself, like Jesus did, to be a servant to all, to live to please God and accomplish his will? My primary concern should not be, what can I get out of the kingdom? But how can I get people into the kingdom? It's not what position I'll hold. It's who will be there who will say thank you for pointing me to the cross. James and John said, give us a place of power. And Jesus said, let me die to save sinners. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you will help to focus our hearts on a God-centered way of life where everything we do is aimed to please you. For one day we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and receive the things done in our body, whether those things are good or whether they are bad. Therefore, let us have as our goal to please you, whether we live or whether we die, to please you, just like Jesus did. In his name we pray, amen. Amen.